Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 35, My Hair is in the Soup. Well, we did it. It's Inauguration Day. Uh, there's been rituals and ceremonies speechifying. How do you feel having uh, witnessed this day? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hot mess, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, what I realized, Josh, is that I want and need apparently very badly to feel better you know and and so i allowed myself to watch that inauguration and to as often as i could at least sometimes suspending disbelief along the way you know allowed myself to to feel better and what that told me i think uh you know in reflection in in semi-calm reflection here is just how very traumatic the last four years have been. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, just the daily deluge of nonsense and violence and uh, lies and and propaganda and I mean, and and to a certain extent, as we're, we're going to get into this, that's not that out of line with <laughs> with the largest sweep of American right. history. But but never before have we had you know this level of technology that just allows us to have to see or see this stuff every single day. Um, you know, having these computers in our pockets that we're constantly mm. <laughs> staring at and being delivered this stuff da- daily into our brains. It's not healthy. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the stuff about Trump as an aberration versus Trump as a, um, you know, the, the id of, mm-hmm. of America mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, he's, he's in, in many ways the perfect president for this era. And I don't mean perfect in a good way. I mean perfect in that, he just encapsulates, right. you know, all these uh, trends and all these um, elements that our society has been and, and has become over our over our history. So, um, you know, if, if Trump didn't exist, we would have to invent him. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, but uh, it will certainly be really a relief to have him gone, at least from uh, from the heights of power. And uh, and then we'll, we'll have to see what happens next. But, um, you know, I'm not. Uh, a Biden stand by any by any means, uh, but just a little bit of normalcy at the top will certainly be be a refreshing change from the just constant insanity of the past four, really, I mean, five years, really, if you think back to the campaign. Yeah, I know it. I mean, look, we're historians, you know, as somebody once said, you know, we're not really the types to give over to a lot of, um, you know, hope themed mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, statements. I mean, you know, as I said, we, we work in a morgue, you know, we see, we see yeah. the dead every day, you know, um, in, in looking to the past and, and usually uh, often anyway, uh, a lot of, of the worst of, of, you know, of man's inhumanity to man, um, which for whatever reason often gets remembered you know um mm-hmm. 
And so I know all the arguments, as do you, you know, and, and no one, you know, really needs to, to remind me as I sit here this morning and, and you know, trying to collect my thoughts uh, that, well, you know, this, this, this doesn't mean that everything is, <laughs> is fixed. It wasn't fixed before, you know, uh, Trump was elected. Yeah. Um, we can talk about a more perfect union. But even that strains my credulity a little bit because, you know, how fucking long does it take to get <laughs> a more perfect union? You know, we're going on uh, you know, 230 years of a constitution, uh, let's say, that promised that, you know, and right. uh, for its opening act gave us the Civil War. How do you like that kind of perfect union? You know, so uh, you want to believe in these things. And, and I guess at the end of the day, I, we, you know, we're also optimists, you know, if we don't just um, line up behind the Hallmark card greeting, you know, greeting card company with the, with the hope, uh, messages of hope, you know, neither do we find ourselves just absolute cynics. And so, yeah, I look, there were certain moments where I found myself, you know, gen- genuinely in- inspired. And I think, you know, maybe the obvious one, but, but, but here again, you know, it comes with its own sort of ambivalence, you know, right, coded right into the language of it, you know, was Kamala Harris's swearing in. You know, mm. when you figure that after 40, I think it's, I want to say 48, a string of 40, like the DiMaggio hitting streak, a string of 48, <laughs> never to be equaled, white vice presidents from the first until Mike Pence, you know, here we have a, a woman, the first woman vice president and uh, a woman of color. And yeah, yeah, you know, but before you, you know, you you hit me on the head with your reality stick. Yeah, I know she was a, a prosecutor, you know, in California. Yeah. Yeah, you know, who enforced, uh, you know, draconian drug sentencing and, and those kinds of things against other people of color. But what is it in me, though, that was nevertheless in, inspired? You know, we've, you know, and here's part of what it is. We've witnessed so few moments of vindication, I think, Josh, in the last four years, where we kept waiting for that moment of vindication, where surely little Toto would go over to the curtain and pull back the curtain, and we'd see that behind the, the flames and roar of the, the scary man up front, there was just a little man behind the curtain pulling levers, you know? And, and it's right. like we, we didn't, we kept getting denied that. We got denied that in the impeachment the first time around, where we had a, mm. a, you know, a president turned extortionist, you know, trying to strong arm a, a foreign government to dig up dirt on his, his, uh, you know, his political rival, the guy who ended up beating him. By the way, uh, we didn't, we didn't quite get it. You know, was Mitch McConnell your moment of vindication, or excuse me, uh, <laughs> the guy from Utah, Mitt Romney? Was Mitt Romney oh, your yeah. moment of because one Republican voted to support? The conviction of President to you know Donald Trump in the Senate that didn't quite do it for me, and so I felt a moment of vindication. You'll just have to allow me that, friends. A moment of vindication when she said her name, Kamala Devi Harris, do solemnly swear. You know, I thought of that clown in Georgia, that guy Purdue, right, the senator who mm-hmm. uh, had made. You know, hey, of Kamala's name, you know, during that that yeah. that uh, campaign appearance, that, yeah. where you know, in a kind of racist, misogynistic send up of her name, uh, and I thought, 
yeah, that son of a bitch lost, didn't he? <laughs> Where's he today? <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. I, I guess maybe small v vindication. Well, I mean, there's the the thrill of of victory that you can you know people can certainly have, but there's also <laughs> the thrill of bad people right. losing, which is also good. Um, and I, you know, I, again, that sounds cynical to, to just talk about that one side, but I, I actually, um, there's a historian, uh, Nikhil Pal Singh, uh, from NYU who had a, I think summed up my feelings pretty well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a longer statement. I'm just going to read the last part. He's talking about, uh, you know, the inauguration and, and listening to Biden. He says, despite myself, I found the mix of mourning and hopefulness, however unconvincing, entirely refreshing mm-hmm. so that's that's how i'm i'm feeling right now it can be both refreshing but uh but i'll reserve right. judgment um you know you're talking about historians and, and and the way we kind of think about things uh, as they're happening i'm i'm very uh resistant to to these historical moments mm-hmm. uh because they're labeled historical and we just don't know how this is going to look you know in 100 years mm-hmm. you know there's been all this talk about you know what's this what's this period going to look like in the u.s history books in in 100 years. And first of all, if, if, if we win, right, if, if HAG wins, there won't be U.S. history books in 100 years, right? We'll, we'll have a different kind of history to tell. But, um, but it, you know, it's very possible that this whole period will just be swept into a longer era, you know, maybe going back to um, a, a Goldwater sure. or something like that, you know, and it just, it just you know, a few pages about that and then it culminates with, with Trump or whatever, as opposed to, you know, the way it's been talked about that it's going to take, you know, six chapters of a U.S. history textbook to talk about just the last six weeks or, or something. So um, yeah, so I I I, I want to let it breathe a little bit and see see where this goes because, you know, it, it's these moments are are significant. Uh, we can enjoy it and that sort of thing. But um, but you know, as you talked about, this there's still a lot of stuff that needs to be done. There's still a lot of change that needs to happen. And it almost reminds me of you know this whole thing about uh, you know 2020 coming to an end and all these celebrations. This horrible year came to an end. But I mean, in reality, it's literally just a, an arbitrary you know, change of, of calendar. It doesn't really mean things will be better just because the year changed. And, uh, you know, I kind of think about that in the, the broader sweep of American history as well, that these, these changes happen, but if these longer term trends are still in place, mm-hmm. um, there's not much we can, we can, uh, you know, the, these, these changes in administrations are maybe, you know, slowing down trends, but, but ultimately we need to, to stop some of these trends that have been occurring in the last, you know, 30, 40, 50, 50 years, if we're really going to build a uh, more just society, more perfect union, as, as you right. said. And I like that phrase because it's, by definition, never achievable. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah open-ended. But, uh, Vague. Open-ended, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I know we both understand the, 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 the roots, the etymological roots of the word inaugural, you know, going back to the, mm-hmm. the deep Roman and, and Etruscan past it was a priestly function right you know the the reading yeah. of entrails uh, to augur you know good or ill you know the future to to portend some future and so uh you know despite all the kind of 21st century hollywood production value you know of lady gaga singing the national anthem <laughs> or you know j-lo at one point i saw alex rodriguez i mean what's what's a-rod doing there you know that well, he's with j-lo and j-lo is singing this land is your land, which, you know, there's a perfect example, Josh, you know, of on the one hand, Woody Guthrie, you know, I'm a big Woody Guthrie fan. You know, I think he was one of the great characters mm-hmm. of the 20th century, a kind of, uh, you know, troubadour of the common, you know, man and all that kind of stuff. And I remember one summer I dedicated a summer school U.S. history course I was teaching to the, the music of Woody Guthrie, actually. And uh, 
And so he wrote this land is your land. But also that's become now, you know, obviously a, a, a target, you know, in some ways, rightfully so, of, of those who call it the, the theme song of settler colonialism. <laughs> you know, this land is yeah, your land. I know. Um, I'm not sure that Woody himself would have thought of it that way. He didn't mean it to be uh, a, certainly a white nationalist anthem, but I understand why some would see it. Uh, for that uh, reason, you know, given the, uh, you know, the abject, uh, you know, kleptocratic swindling of, of <laughs> you know, native lands over time by the, you know, the white nationalist government. So, uh, you know, there's ambivalence, I guess. And maybe that's where we as historians sort of uh, often touch down, you know, being uh, kind of morgue workers as we are, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. we never quite leave the job. You know, it, we never quite leave the work. You know, when we when we uh, when we go home, and and yet, yeah, I wanted to feel refreshed this morning, and I think as human beings we have to. You know, we can't live in that place, as my father used to say. You know, on the balls of your feet all the time. You you have to relax that occasionally, and so heck, you know, I let myself enjoy Lady Gaga, you know, a little bit, and. And Kamala and, yeah, old Joe Biden and, and you know, and tomorrow, what, uh, tomorrow we go back to work. Yeah, and I, 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 I actually really like that, what you you can't just stay on the balls of your feet, because that, that's a great, actually, metaphor for the past four years, yeah. that constant, you know, feeling that something's about to drop. And, you know, I, I, I get people who make the case that Democrats and Republicans are not different enough or, you know, the Democratic Party should be more whatever. But I, I also am not so sympathetic to the idea that we only—it's the one-party system. Because even if you know, you know, Obama had uh, drone strikes, for instance, but there were many, many more under Trump in those four years, and they were much less regulated. And it doesn't mean that Obama's drone strikes were good; they were probably war mm -hmm. crimes. But for the people being hit by the drones, it, right. it matters, right? That there's less of them uh, versus more of them. And, and the same thing here—you know, there's obviously massive problems with this entire American system. Um, but taking out just the intentional cruelty of, of the last four years will, will make a difference, right? Even if it doesn't result in a true, you know, multiracial democracy in which, uh, you know, people are given equal opportunity or, or you know, whatever your, your ideal is, um, just not, you know, going out and intentionally trying to make people's lives worse uh, will, will be better. And it will make, uh, you know, our daily lives less stressful, even again, recognizing that. We are not. We are not out of the woodwork. Uh, not sorry. Not out of the, uh, the, the these problems mm -hmm. yet. Uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be did. Uh, mm -hmm. Need needs to be done. But um, you know, if he's going to do an executive order that's going to grant um, you know citizenship or a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, that's a big deal. Um, even if there's still border policies that are horrific. Right. Uh, even if there is you know not enough allowance for immigration. What, whatever the case is. This makes a difference for a lot of people's lives, and I, I think that's right. worth recognizing, even as we do recognize, yeah, this is not 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 perfect. By yeah, means. I agree, and I and I was I was you know sort of catching myself thinking that maybe the litmus test now going forward for all all the work that government does, you know, is is you know, do, does it make us a better union, and mm -hmm. uh, applying that strictly, you know, so that if it's uh, you know uh, a massive tax cut. You know, for corporations who will use the gained savings to buy back their own stock, that doesn't make us a better union. 
You, you know what I mean? So yeah. let's just cut through the bullshit and, and say that doesn't make us a better union. You know, does does an amnesty moving forward for, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, immigrants in the country or, you know, or, or, or you know, some better you know, law to, to protect those who are found at the border, you know, or, 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 you know, those applying for, you know, political asylum, et cetera. Does that make us a better union? You're damn right. It makes us a better union. So let's work on those laws. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that's my, that's my Mr. Smith goes to Washington, my Jimmy Stewart in the role of Mr. Smith going to Washington to say, Hey, it's not that difficult after all, you know, uh, that we can figure out how to do this. But as sure as I say it, Josh, uh, you know, there it, I, I, I was sort of finishing up with things this morning and had the TV on still. And after the inaugural, there was a ceremony somewhere near the rotunda where uh, some sort of strange political gift giving that's supposed to be symbolic of goodwill, where the um, leaders mm -hmm. of Congress come together and the new president and then vice president are, are um, sort of serenaded in a way, you know, with these gifts or symbolic gifts, you know, I don't think. Biden actually got like, you know, like a Brooks Brothers suit or something, you know, giving him like when a baseball player yeah. retires, yeah. they give him like a pink Cadillac or okay. something. They gave Bruce Bochy a bunch of uh, a bunch of whiskey or something, didn't they? Uh, right. Yeah, well, anyway, uh, they're standing there. And so sure enough, you know, Mitch McConnell says his bit kind of a jokey thing about how Harris and Biden are both coming out of the Senate, not out of the House. Ha ha, Nancy Pelosi. And she kind of takes it in stride and says something about, well, we're sure going to give you a bottle of California wine. That's for sure. But then up steps Kevin McCarthy. And who is Kevin McCarthy? He's the majority leader in the House now. Uh, the guy who, uh, as recently as, as the evening of January 6th, note that's after the Marauders had been through that very ro rotunda, you know, like mm -hmm. the crazed villagers in a Frankenstein movie. Uh, <laughs> after that, McCarthy returned to the House to vote down the certification of the election. And so this guy's standing there now all smiles you know, from a California congressman, right, from the Bakersfield area, has risen, risen through the ranks now and in the Trump years has become one of those angry villagers bearing a torch trying to burn down democracy. Now he's standing there saying how proud he is of Biden and Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris and how, uh, you know, important this, this moment is, this ceremony. And I think, you know, look, I lived in Washington, D.C. when I was doing my research, you know, I, I commuted into the district every day. I, I took my kids around to all the monuments and, and I know the town is nothing if not um, capable of, you know, a chameleon like, you know, change of identity. But hell, January 6th, what, what is it today? The 21st, 20th? What did, uh, yeah, 20th, so it's yeah. been two weeks, you know, all two weeks. And Kevin McCarthy's transformed himself from, you know, seditious Frankenstein villager bearing torches to now congratulating and serenading the opposition, uh, you know, candidates who won the election. Uh, you want to, as my therapist, Josh, you want to help me with that? Well, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm going to I'm going to double down on this because if anything really worries me, it's that the American memory for this stuff is so short, and it's I mean intentionally made short by by the system. And we're going to talk much more about this as as we go forward this episode. But you know, two weeks later, we're already just okay. This guy is now legitimate again, and he can go up and make jokes with uh, the new you know the new administration, and you know George W. Bush is there, and he's not 
being, you know, frog marched in chains <laughs> to The Hague or anything like that. And, you know, they're sharing candies with the Obamas or whatever idiocy they're up to. Um, so, you know, in, in a system that, that functioned, there would be consequences for actions like those that the, the Bushes, uh, that, that, you know, W. Bush uh, did during his administration, the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, supported this insurrection on Janu- January 6th. But, um, I mean, that's still not the country we live in. There still is very rarely any kind of uh, consequences for, for the a- actions of elites. And, uh, and that's a pretty good symbol of it. Uh, right, right there, having Kevin McCarthy uh, come up, come up there, and just as a legitimate voice of the Republican Party, um, you know, say he's proud of of this thing that he tried to overturn right. two weeks ago. From sedition to serenade, how's that? Uh, <laughs> well, you know what, and thank you for that because that's a, a nice segue now into our next segment. Because what we're going to suggest, I think, is that uh, whether we looked at you know the the issue uh, in in the nation's past or, or even more globally. That this tendency toward uh, not just short memory and, and forgetting, that's certainly part of it, but then revising along the lines of, of unity, of healing, of reconciliation, uh, is actually quite a dangerous prospect. Ooh, that is delicious. Yo, I coon like doo-wops you. You know this life is vicious and it seems... The only option is to cling to the mind that retains the faculty to dream. And it seems the only option is to cling Well, you know, watching the, the inauguration the today, again, my, uh, you know, I guess my historian's training uh, is ha- uh, taking me back to some of the, uh, well, the, the beginnings of my own career, really, Josh. I, I you know, as, as, a, as a doctoral student, I did my research on uh, antebellum America, that is the pre-Civil War era of American history, which, as I've you know come to understand in its own sort of uh, what we call teleological way, that is the idea of history moving in a direction sort of way, always sort of arrives at the Civil War, you know, and I, I, I you know, would always try to tell my students, hey, you know, nobody knew for sure this was going to be, you know, the, the result of all this was going to be a Civil War. But, you know, because as a historian, we're sort of principled, right, in, in, in saying that we reject teleology. But the funny thing is, you know, when you, when you read a lot of the sources, you know, from that period, a lot of the primary sources, you know, newspaper editorials, political speeches, other kinds of things, personal correspondence. I mean, we, you even have Thomas Jefferson, aged Thomas Jefferson back in, you know, just before his death in 1826, writing a letter basically predicting the death knell of the Union. Now, that that was hmm. almost 40 years, you know, in advance. So you, you start seeing contemporaries, you know, in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, all kind of talking of this dark foreboding, you know, about what's going to come. And then, you know, maybe, maybe we call that confirmation bias or something. I don't know. What do we make of that? Right. Well, that's funny when you said that because that's a that's a trope in the British Empire that like every generation of British imperialists uh, is sure that the empire is about to fall <laughs> apart and it's not like it used to be, and then it just keeps chugging along and chugging along and and then Winston Churchill's the last one who's still saying uh, it it should continue to exist at a certain point. But yeah, I mean that that's and I, and I think you see it in the Roman Empire actually as well. Uh, you know that sense that this isn't what it used to be and uh, it's it's sure to fall soon and it can't hold on. But it just you know, keeps chugging along. And uh, so, so maybe there's something, something deeper going on there than, than just something specifically American. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's good politics, you know, doomsaying or something, you know, the Jeremiah, yeah. you know, that uh, 
you know, inspires people to... If we don't do the thing that I want us <laughs> yeah. to do, then this whole thing is exactly. Well, oh, but then we end up with Lincoln there, you know, in, in April of 1861 uh, at his first inaugural, famous inaugural address, right? In which he uh, evokes the better angels of our nature, you know, and in calling off what appears to be a war. You know, by the time Lincoln showed up in Washington to, to take the oath of office, six states had already seceded from the Union before, you know, before mm-hmm. the ink was even dry on his signature, uh, you know. And so uh, I used to say to my student, you talk about a bad first day on the job, you know. Uh, and, and in some <laughs> ways, I guess we could say we caught a break today that, that only Trump was missing from today's ceremony, you know, rather than six yeah. states have, uh, you know, somehow, you know, forsworn the Union and, and you know, promising civil war. Maybe we're getting off off light, you know, that it was just, you know, Mike Pence sort of showing up, uh, you know, with mother to, uh, you know, to stand in. And and usually it's the president, the, the former now former president leads the new president down the steps of the Capitol, you know. Uh, but today it was the it was the it was Pence and uh, Kamala Harris and their their spouses who walked down the steps of the Capitol and Kamala sort of waved as Mike Pence drove off, you know, so, yeah, it was strange, but maybe I shouldn't complain because, you know, it was worse uh, in Lincoln's day. But, you know, in all seriousness, you know, what those images are meant to create, the symbolism of today's inauguration, uh, particularly two weeks after the insurrection, are meant to create are these images of unity, right? You know, right up to the point where Kevin McCarthy is, you know, yucking it up. You know, in a ceremony after the inauguration, you know, uh, uh, fading the uh, new president, vice president. It's hard to, it's hard to believe, but I think there's a greater danger there. And I want to talk uh, with you here and our and uh, for our listeners about what that lesson I think of the Civil War, you know, the, the great insurrection in American history, the one that left seven hundred thousand uh, upwards now of uh, it's uh, the best estimates of seven hundred thousand more. Uh, you know, die in this this calamity really than than all uh, other American wars and uh, put together that um, that that it was beyond the Civil War that the dangers of unity and union and and in other words themes of togetherness that we saw, for example, you know, in today's ceremony, uh, how they could end up being actually quite a dangerous thing and and look let let's lay our cards on the table we're thinking in terms of you know not just uh, you know Mike Pence showing up for the inauguration but we're we're talking about what's going to happen next in the Senate right you know with this question mm-hmm. of of impeachment uh, the impeachment Donald Trump was impeached for a second time by the House of Representatives now it's up to the US Senate to hold a trial and either confirm the the impeachment articles with a conviction or not uh, and not just for Trump, but also those like Kevin McCarthy, like Josh Hawley, like Ted Cruz uh, and others who similarly supported in, in word and even indeed in, in my book, you know, by voting down the uh, certification of the election, but certainly in word, uh, supported the sedition that we saw on January 6th, in which, by the way, you know, it, it again pays to remember that uh, five people died on January twenty, uh, January sixth. Five people died and scores were injured, and the fact that it failed in the end, 
it came as close as one Capitol Police officer, you know, leading the mob up the wrong stairway, right? Getting them farther away from the Senate, uh, where senators were still struggling to get out of the Senate chamber uh, and buying them precious time to do so. You know, when you have uh, people showing up with with nooses, you know, and chanting, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, hang uh, Pence and that kind of thing, that, you know, covering all that over, glazing that over, you know, with talk of unity, and and or even you know uh, what uh, mercy or or reconciliation or something can prove to be quite quite dangerous and so uh, yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about what happened after the Civil War but do you have any thoughts sort of around this issue as we lead in I, I'm I'm really excited to hear what you're what you're gonna get into but I, I just keep going back to that something I, I like to quote you on this uh, because I think it's it's so important but just this idea that and I, I think this very much you know frames what you're gonna be saying is that bad history doesn't heal us it makes us right. sicker and uh, and any attempt to to uh, wash away the past mm-hmm. and, and wash away the crimes of, of the mm-hmm. past um, you know whether or not it's for the sake of unity or not it's it's just gonna leave us a sicker country in in the end that um, you have to face these things you have to deal with these things and if you don't they're just going to continue to be part of of the system, and I, and I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But you know, letting elites get away with with bad actions uh, of various sorts is really invitation for future elites to continue to um, test the system and test you know the norms of the system. And the more that happens, the more unstable the, the entire uh, situation system is going to be. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, no, it's it's absolutely vital to to remember this stuff. To keep it for, uh, foremost in our mind as we, as we move forward, because um, we don't want to get sicker. <laughs> we exactly. want to get we want to get healthier. Exactly. Um, and I, I I think that's that's the crucial. Yeah, thing. a more perfect union is not one that ignores the cancer, you know. Or if you want to use right, another right, metaphor, right. I you know I moved into a new place recently, and there was some water damage that had to be repaired from from the the neighboring unit. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, many times for the, you know, throughout my life where I've either owned properties or rented, you know, it's one of those things you don't ignore is water damage. You know, it's like, well, let's just mm-hmm. pretend it's not, and it'll get better. Water damage is insidious. Uh, it's often silent, but it is sure to create ever greater problems, uh, for not only the, the structure, but potentially, you know, as we know in this age of, uh, you know, viral infestation with mold and those kinds of things. So, yeah, you you, you don't <laughs> you don't you don't uh, you don't ignore it. You know, in 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 the name of some you know greater uh, imagined good. And and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I you know as I think about what happened after the war, the Civil War now, um, which ends in 1865. Uh, you know what, and I'm going to use this as an example of the, what I'll call the kind of the um, rehabilitation of certain uh, Confederates, or the you know the um, the granting of amnesty. There was a, a general amnesty granted by President Andrew Johnson following Lincoln's assassination. A general amnesty offered by the president, a man who himself was a Southerner and was sympathetic to, to slaveholding interests, even though. He had remained loyal to the Union, Andrew Johnson, uh, a guy who himself will be impeached, not unlike Trump, by the way, and will use the power of pardon, also like Trump has done in, in recent days, to 
uh, basically uh, offer exoneration to really some really scurrilous and, and awful people, you know. Um, and and what what therefore the legacy of of what all that was? It was supposed to be a legacy of reconciliation, of reunification, of reunion, etc. But I'm I'm going to argue that it was a much darker legacy than than all of that. And I'm going to focus on one individual here, uh, and that being Jefferson Davis who served as the president of the Confederacy, the Confederate States of America during the war. Um, I suppose most people know that. You, you may not know that Jefferson Davis had a long career before the Civil War. You know, uh, born, born a Southerner. He was a longtime military officer. If, I want to say memory serves. He may have been a West Point grad. I, uh, I'll stand corrected on that if not the case. But served as a longtime U.S. military officer in the, in the wars, um, the Mexican War in the 1840s and some of the so-called Indian Wars. Uh, he goes into Paul. He was a uh, plantation owning uh, Mississippian. Jefferson's Bend, Mississippi was the family plantation. He was elected to Congress first as a representative and then as a, a senator, one of, one of the leading political voices of the South, and then for a time even was Secretary of, of State. And so I'm tempted to say that if Mike Pompeo has been indeed the worst Secretary of State uh, in American history, then that gets Jefferson Davis off the hook, you know. But uh, <laughs> the competition is, is intense there. But... Uh, yeah, when the war starts, he, along with many other Southern uh, congressmen, uh, of course, uh, renounces his his loyalty to the Union and joins the Confederacy. And in Davis's case, becomes uh, elected as president of the Confederacy, the position he'll hold throughout the entire Civil War. All right, well, so much has been done, I think, Josh, to romanticize the Civil War, even, you know, in that kind of um, nostalgic way you know, of looking back, mm -hmm. uh, it pays to remember just not only how brutal the war was itself, but how often the motives of those who led the Confederacy have been kind of glossed over under unmeaning general rubrics like states' rights, you know, in other words. Right. Well, they yeah. were just, you know, in favor of states' rights. And in the end, you know, how can you really blame them for that? Don't we all kind of distrust Washington just a little? You know, that kind of false equivalence, you know, of what they were doing then under what we might, you know, sort of casually uh, accept as, you know, something like states' rights. Today and 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 even as we know that some uh, you know in our own current uh, political context those who who ransacked the Capitol a couple of weeks ago have a very much darker view of course of of states' rights and so maybe you know maybe we can we can recall just how insidious a lot of this was. Look, let me fast forward. 1863, Lincoln issues the famous Emancipation Proclamation, which basically nullified um, slavery in those states that were still in rebellion, okay? So uh, at that time of the war, most of the Confederacy was still very much intact, and so Lincoln was using this as a kind of wedge to now broaden the aims of the war to include uh, slavery in those Confederate states. It also led to the enlistment of black soldiers in the Union Army during the war. 180,000, more than 180,000 black troops will serve in the Union cause. Uh, at that point, it's probably the single greatest manpower advantage the Union Army will have uh, in bringing the war to a close 
1864 and 1865. That's not how Jefferson Davis, Jefferson Davis did not see this as a, um, as a more perfect union, you might say, this emancipating right. of slaves, this enlisting of black troops, et cetera. He called it the most execrable. It's not a word we get often anymore, but I you like can look word. it up. The most execrable, think excrement, okay? The most execrable <laughs> re- record in the history of guilty man. Uh, that is the emancipating <laughs> of slaves and the enlisting of uh, black troops. Uh, he announced henceforth in response to this, that the officers of black regiments, Union Army regiments, would be turned over, who were taken prisoner, in other words, during the war, would be turned over to the states to be executed as, quote, criminals engaged in servile insurrection. And he expanded upon that and said that black soldiers taken prisoner would as well. In other words, he still regarded this as a slave uprising, In other words, the Emancipation Proclamation and the use of white officers in black regiments as nothing more than aiding and abetting a slave uprising, the punishment for which would be death. And so there would be black troops uh, executed summarily uh, Mm -hmm. in, in violation of the previous agreements regarding prisoner exchanges and that sort of thing. Uh, would be executed summarily as a result. So this is Jefferson Davis now, a man who is willing to use his own sedition, his own treason, if you will, against the country he had sworn allegiance to as a military officer, as a congressman, etc. Now as president of the Confederacy, he has no hesitation in doing this. And I think not unlike Donald Trump, you know, and, it, and I guess it's easy to, you know, to draw these analogies. I'm going to do it. Uh, you can decide for yourself. Not unlike Donald Trump, Jefferson Davis refused to accept defeat two years later at war's end. You know, when the war ends in 1865, uh, he will be one of the very last holdouts and will engage in a crusade claiming that the war was not over, the Confederacy had not been uh, defeated, Uh, was as defiant as ever, you might say. Uh, I'll give you an example. In in January of 1865, the war is going to end three months later, but in January of 1865, after the fall of Fort Fisher uh, in North Carolina, this was the last of the great sort of coastal fortresses that protected the Confederacy uh, that hadn't fallen. Um, Others had Vicksburg, for example, in Mississippi and Mobile Bay in Alabama, but Fort Fisher was this heavily guarded, nearly impregnable uh, fort that guarded uh, the, uh, the sort of Cape Fear region, the access to the coastal region of North Carolina. And it was finally taken, okay, at great cost in January of 1865, and it pretty much sealed the end of the Confederacy's military uh, chances, uh, because now they were completely enclosed in a kind of Union stranglehold. And, and most people recognized that at the time, right? In fact, there was even a Confederate Peace Commission that was sent um, over Jefferson Davis's objection to Lincoln because there was internal division now in the Confederacy and a peace commission went to Washington to meet with Lincoln to see if they could to declare maybe an, uh, an armistice, armistice between the two sides. But Lincoln wouldn't, um, wouldn't give in on the idea that somehow the South would have to be recognized as an independent nation by an armistice. He never 
you know, he, I mean, Lincoln, for his own part, refused to recognize the legitimacy of the Confederacy. He always referred to it as a rebellion. And so when he refused any offer of an armistice, basically that, that peace effort fell apart. But Jefferson Davis himself was gleeful. He didn't want it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. and he said uh, that the North, quote, uh, has refused to permit us to have peace on any other basis than our unconditional submission to their rule, close quote. Uh, so in other words, for Davis, it would be war to the bitter end, uh, which would be the only honorable alternative. And it was said of Jefferson Davis by the historian James McPherson said he lived in a fog of unreality where victory still seemed possible. So yeah, who does that remind you of? Well, I mean, it, it, it's very Trumpian, of course, yeah. but I think that the other thing you, you see, and I, I, actually this is a link as well, is that, you know, that what could be seen as, you know, uh, you know, courage, I guess, in the face of impending defeat mm-hmm. or, or uh, um, you know, uh, sticking with the cause or, or, you know, there's, there's ways you can kind of paint this in, in ways that are courageous, but the self-interest part is, is really important to point out because, you know, as the president of the Confederacy, you can imagine that for his part, um, surrender would mean something bad's going to happen to him right. Right? <laughs> because he was leading the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, you know, where other people saw, well, maybe we can put an end to the, the, the death and the killing and the defeats and this kind of stuff for him. Um, you know, if they didn't keep fighting, then it was over for him, right? And so, continuing to fight didn't cost him anything more than 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 giving up. So for him, it might as well keep doing it. It actually reminds me of, uh, you know, Cortez. There's all these famous stories about Cortez. You know, the one where he he burns the ships in the in the harbor so that none of his men right. can return to to uh, yes. Cuba. Um, and so that scene is oh, so he you know that's how that's how dedicated he was to this this mission. But he was a criminal in the eyes of the Spanish crown, he was engaged in his own sedition by leading this mission he was not approved to do. So yeah, I guess you could say it's courage, but it's also, he knew there was only one way forward and that was keep marching to, to Tenochtitlan. Um, you know, and again, that's, that's Trump yes. too. He knows if, you know, if he, if he concedes, then he's now subject to actual consequences, financial, um, political, you know, criminal, whatever else. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think, Jefferson Davis is right right there as well. Yeah, because you don't see a guy like Trump doing a Kevin McCarthy anytime soon, sort of turning around and yucking, you know, glad handing and trying to curry favor. Right. You know, it's sort of the narcissist rule of history or something, you know, never admit defeat, uh, never concede or yeah. something like that. Uh, but, but Davis was wrong. Victory wasn't possible, strictly speaking, at least in the short run, any kind of military victory for the Confederacy. And yet... And yet, what followed, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I, I would argue was some sort of other version of victory, you know, both for Jefferson Davis and, and for the Confederacy, um, if not, you know, as a formal entity, at least, what, what, what do we want to call it, maybe the ghost of the Confederacy mm. or something? Uh, well, first of all, keep in mind the, the immediate problem was the uh, successful plot to assassinate the president. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, just uh, not unlike January 6th, uh, you know, the the interim between January 6th insurrection and today's inauguration, there was a short period, uh, you know, following Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox uh, before Abraham Lincoln himself was, was assassinated, you know, in the famous conspiracy of John Wilkes Booth. Um, 
you know, you think of the the insurrectionists on the six bringing a noose to Congress. You know, chanting, mm-hmm. "Hang Mike Pence." What's the difference? Well, one conspiracy, one attempt was successful. The other one wasn't. Maybe if that officer, that Capitol Police officer, hadn't led the mob, you know, up the wrong staircase deliberately to keep to buy a few precious moments to get the Senate gallery cleared, maybe they would have gotten their hands on this guy. Yeah, you know what I mean? In yeah. other words, right. again, five people died that day. So I, I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's, um, you know, I'm not hysterical here, am I, in suggesting that, you know, when looking at what happened on January 6th, you know, it was not terribly unlike, you know, what happened, let's say, with the case of Lincoln's assassination, where you have this... Um, this cadre of, of uh, you know, seditionists not willing to, to call it quits. Not, not Yeah, no, I think that's, that, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, it's obviously when it's successful, it's more tragic than if it's not. But uh, the intent is the same. There's a, there's a Simpson line, uh, Sideshow Bob, <laughs> I think he's on trial. He says, he says, attempted murder. Now, honestly, what is that? Can you win a Nobel Prize for attempted chemistry? <laughs> so, yeah, attempted it's still a crime when you engage in an attempted coup or atten- attempted murder. Thanks for uh, bringing me back to yeah, reality <laughs> with the great Sideshow Bob. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what we see uh, in America at that time after Lincoln's assassination in, in the grieving and in, in, in the memorializing of Lincoln is a kind of liberal turn toward the rebels, ironically, mm-hmm. as if, well— you know, enough is enough or something. Uh, even even Sherman, uh, because not all the fighting was done yet. There were still these sort of recalcitrant, you know, divisions or, or, or companies of troops out in the trans-Mississippi West and various pockets and places. Uh, Sherman, who had made his march to the sea, you know, defeating the, the Confederate uh, resistance in Georgia and then through the Carolinas, Sherman himself offers a generous, generous terms of surrender to the defeated uh, Confederate army just on his own authority, uh, going so far mm. as to recognizing southern state governments. Now, these are the unreconstructed governments of the Confederacy now, right, right who still held that slaveholding was legal, who still uh, presumed uh, authority over state militias and that kind of thing. In other words, people were horrified at first. They said, you just gave tacit recognition to these insurgent governments, you know, including their claims of property and slaves. And it was only because um, the cabinet, Lincoln's cabinet and, uh, and Grant basically countermanded Sherman's orders that he had to go back and renegotiate a surrender with mm-hmm. Joe Johnston, his Confederate counterpart, that was more along the lines of the surrender that Grant and Lee had accorded, which, though still pretty generous— at least did not recognize the legitimacy of the unreconstructed Confederate states at that time. And yet, I think in a way that was a kind of foreshadowing of of what was to come. Look, Lee had surrendered, but Jefferson Davis had not. And he took what was left of his Confederate uh, cabinet, presidential cabinet and government, he took them on the road. They went on the run. They left Richmond and and went on a a kind of... uh, higgledy-piggledy course through the South. And at every stop, you know, with, 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 the, with the Union cavalry just, uh, just behind him, right? You know, and at every stop, he exhorted the people that came out to greet him to keep on fighting. Uh, mm. And this is after Lee's surrender. And this is even after Lincoln's assassination now. And so it reminded me a little bit of Trump's 
parting shot today, you know, just before the inaugural, you had Trump out at uh, Andrews Air Force Base, right? You know, getting on, you know, Air Force One for one one last time, I guess, you know, to fly to Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, his parting shot was, quote, this is just the beginning. Ugh. Yeah, I didn't see that. That's terrible. Yep. So Davis himself was proposing extending the Confederate government out to the Trans-Mississippi West, where he said it would fight a ceaseless guerrilla war. You know, they'd become what? I don't know, the Viet Minh or something, you know, Mm -hmm. fighting a ceaseless guerrilla war. Or I think the actual the analogy he had in mind, you know, was like the Irish in Ireland or something, a kind of rearguard, you know, guerrilla action that would just keep on fighting. Well, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to report, I guess. Yeah, it didn't happen. Hmm. Union Cavalry finally caught up to him in Georgia that May uh, and arrested him. So, yeah, okay, so the war was in a formal sense over. And he was taken to Fortress Monroe, one of those federal uh, prisons, uh, military forts, and was imprisoned at first in shackles. He was put in a, in a cell uh, in shackles and, and refused visitors Jefferson Davis was, as uh, talk of a trial for treason. And in fact, they'll, they'll convene a grand jury in Richmond, uh, Virginia, ironically, which had been the capital. I'm sure it was probably not by accident that it was in Richmond, uh, had been the capital, of course, of the Confederacy to, to consider charges of treason and murder. And I want to read you a piece, Josh, here from the... Um, Historian Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, who's one of our uh, leading uh, uh, U.S. historians, a black uh, historian who's done a lot of great work in, in uh, black history and, and, uh, and U.S. history. Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham says, My first real knowledge of the Civil War and its aftermath came from seeing a photograph of my great-grandfather, Albert Royal Brooks, a former slave. Brooks served on the Richmond Grand Jury convened to consider evidence against Jefferson Davis for treason. Davis never came to trial. He was pardoned in 1868 by President Andrew Johnson. In fact, the only visual record I have of my great-grandfather comes from this extraordinary photograph of him sitting proudly among the black and white jurors. And and I'll post a picture of that on our episode webpage, by the way. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, as a child, uh, she writes, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham writes, uh, and for years thereafter, I wondered why the trial had not occurred and also what my great-grandfather might have felt about it. Well, if you go back and you look, you know, what you see and what she goes on to write about in that same piece is that the reason why that treason trial never occurred? By the way, no treason trial uh, was staged for any of the Confederates. The only person convicted of a crime was the command, uh, the commandant of the Andersonville prison in Georgia, um, and that was on charges of what we'd consider today a kind of a war crime because of the mm-hmm. uh, atrocious conditions at Andersonville. There was a famous expose in New York Times right after the war that showed the emaciated figures. If you you think of the liberation of the death camps, you know, in Europe, um, Germany, yeah. Germany's yeah. death camps after the war in Poland and, and elsewhere that um, you know what these Union prisoners look like. They're absolutely – it was one of the first photo – uh, exposés, in fact, uh, in modern American media. Um, and uh, 
But otherwise, that that no 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 trials were held, no 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 serious punishments. As as she mentioned, Andrew Johnson issued a kind of blanket amnesty, which, by the way, in theory, you were supposed to uh, apply for, and the president would have to approve your amnesty. Jefferson Davis didn't even bother doing that. He was unrepentant. He wasn't willing to apply for anything like an amnesty. Eventually, he was taken out of his cold, you know, jail cell. He was given a a, a comfier. Uh, confine where his wife and daughter were able to live with him and and uh, and then once pardoned you know was simply uh, simply let go uh, it's worth noting by the way though that uh, some very well-known northerners uh, were um, involved with an effort to put up bail money for Jefferson Davis Okay, um, the pardoning of Jefferson Davis, uh, the New York Herald newspaper and New York Tribune both printed editorials sympathetic uh, to Davis, a wealthy and influential northerners, including names like Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, Horace wow. Greeley of the New York Tribune, and even the former radical abolitionist Garrett Smith. Garrett Smith had been one of those guys that helped fund John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, Garrett Smith all put up money for Davis's bail in the name of of reunion and reconciliation. Even the black clergyman, uh, Henry McNeil Turner, who was a real firebrand abolitionist uh, before the war and and well-known at the time, presented an earnest supplication for Davis's release. Um, All the while, the House of Representatives was considering, um, you know, a trial uh, from June 11th, 1866, where it is notorious that Jefferson Davis was the leader of the late rebellion and is guilty of treason under the laws of the United States. And whereas by proclamation of the president of May 1865, the said Davis was charged with complicity in the assassinations of President Lincoln. Uh, this is These are articles that the House will actually vote to improve, uh, to approve. And so what I'm saying is even as there were elements in the North that were determined to see Jefferson Davis and others, leaders of the Confederacy, brought to account for their actions, uh, actions which uh, resulted, uh, as we know, in a war, uh, a calamitous war uh, that caused nearly 700,000 deaths, that though there, there was also a grand well of support in the name of reconciliation, in the name of unity, uh, and it was that, uh, impulse, by the way, that will eventually prevail. As I say, Jefferson Davis will be pardoned, um, unrepentant. He he never uh, petitions for amnesty nor retreats or retracts from any of his, his actions. Taken in 1869, he becomes the president of the Carolina Life Insurance Company. Wow. <laughs> Based in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, at an annual salary by the way, of about $12,000, which is equivalent to a couple hundred thousand dollars in our own day. Um, He went on a kind of uh, a speaking tour at one point. Davis proclaimed that Southerners, quote, uh, were cheated, not conquered, were cheated, not conquered, Mm -hmm. and would have never surrendered if they had foreseen the Reconstruction era uh, that followed. in touring the South in 1886 and 1887, this is 20 years after the war, Davis attended many lost cause ceremonies and large crowds showered him with affection. Uh, 
as local leaders presented emotional speeches honoring his sacrifices during the war. Uh, Davis did urge Southerners to be loyal to the nation. Uh, United you are now, he said, and if the union is ever to be broken, let the other side break it. It reminds me of Trump's belated and half-hearted, what, condemnation of the the violence or something on January 6th? Did you see that? Well, condemnation is probably too strong Yeah, not condemnation. uh, Yeah, you're right. Kind of maybe. It was more like a... uh, you know, when, when uh, terrorists bring out their hostages to read like a prepared statement. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you can always tell Trump when he's reading something somebody has given him or when he's in his true element. Yeah, without ad-libbing random. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, Jefferson Davis lived out a quiet retirement ultimately to write his memoirs, uh, died at age 81 in uh, New Orleans. And I guess what I want to say about this, uh, Josh, is that... Uh, because ultimately in that debate after war, that moment of decision where either, you know, the, the initiative uh, that was shown in the House resolution to take him to trial for treason in the grand jury formation in Richmond that Evelyn Brooks uh, Higginbotham recalled her grandfather, a former, you know, a former enslaved person, was now part of a reconstruction mm-hmm. effort to integrate uh, juries and, and such and voting rights and such in the South. That impulse on the one hand versus the impulse, and, and it wasn't only an impulse, if I didn't make it clear, coming out of the South, these weren't just a bunch of former Confederates. You know, we talk about people like Horace Greeley and Garrett Smith. These had been, you know, leading abolitionists before the war, Northerners, right, who are now that the war is over and the Confederacy is defeated, now willing to say that bygones be bygones, you know, and that, that in the interests of reconciliation and reunion, that there not be treason trials, uh, or really trials of any kind, you know, for crimes committed to the war. Um, and I guess what I want to say about that, Josh, is as a result, because that impulse won out, ultimately, you know, the head was never cut off the snake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can talk about events, uh, even in that immediate context, when Jefferson Davis is still alive, I and mean, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't die until, uh, you know, the late 1880s in 1873. You know, in Colfax, Mississippi, just outside New Orleans, the, the, the infamous Colfax Massacre, where you had these former Confederate, you know, troops who are rearmed now, you know, uh, marching on the town of Colfax, where there was a, a, a black reconstruction government attempting to, to take power according to the legal dictates of, of the age, and essentially rampaging and killing scores of them in a, in a bloody melee, uh, what we call the Colfax ma- massacre, to prevent this duly elected Reconstruction government from taking power. Um, that's impossible because I've I've heard that there was no precedent in American history for what happened on on January sixth. So you, that must be a made up story you just came up with. <laughs> well, and I think that's the danger, right? You know, as you say, is a one off. Oh, this was a one off, and now cooler heads have right. have prevailed or something, you know. But uh, like I said, if the cooler heads are the, you know, the head of the snake, you better cut that head off because at the same time, by the way, you know, I said Jefferson Davis ultimately retired and, and lived out his life in New Orleans. Well, he was well aware that something called the Battle of Liberty Place, the Battle of Liberty Place took place in New Orleans in 1874 when the the so-called White League, which was one of these domestic, ter- think Proud Boys, you know, uh, think mm-hmm. KKK, when the White League... Um, 
uh, as as a historian Eric Foner mentioned, actually who had the courage of their convictions because they admitted yeah, their great. white supremacist intentions, right? Um, had an uprising against the biracial government in Louisiana that was eventually put down by federal forces. In other words, U.S. Army had to be called in to put down the White League. So well armed were they and so willing to use uh, violence to to gain their cause. So, um, you know, what I want to say is this. Because ultimately, I guess the postscript to the war was going to be written by the unifiers, the reconciliators, because the Jefferson Davises mm-hmm. and the White Leagues and the uh, other, I mean, there's a long list. You know, D- Davis didn't go to prison. He got a job as an insurance executive. You know, Robert E. Lee didn't go to prison. He got a job as a college president. Uh, <laughs> that what began to happen, even in Jefferson Davis's own time, was this lost cause mythology began to form. And he, he lived long enough to be a part of it, you know. Uh, and look, I mean, on the one hand, we know... What? The commemoration. What reconciliation becomes is commemoration. What commemoration becomes is mismemory and then eventually mm-hmm. revision so that the Civil War was a, a quarrel between white people that uh, had Southerners on principle just trying to protect states' rights. You get uh, not only statues, of which, by the way, Jefferson Davis some of these statues are towering monuments. Statues don't quite do justice. You know, the one in New Orleans, I think, reached over 200 feet high or something. Uh, wow. How about a highway, the Jefferson Davis Highway? I've, I've driven on I've that driven highway. driven on yeah. that highway. Um, that what all this lends itself to is not just some nostalgic notion, oh, it wasn't all that bad, but then actually fosters the kind of a, a counter thesis that it was all actually quite good. I mean, in, in, mm-hmm. in, in the January 6th insurrection, one of the, the pictures that is most indelible to me is the one that shows the dude with the uh, stars and bars, right? The rebel flag, the rebel ba- mm-hmm. battle flag uh, in the rotunda. Well, yeah. okay, in Statuary Hall of the Capitol, there's no fewer than six former Confederates featured, you know, where each state gets to put up its own statued figures. Uh, there's at least six former Confederates in there. And I think that's more than just metaphorical. In other words, the guy with the Confederate flag walking through a hall, uh, the U.S. Congress, you know, where there are Confederate statues to this day. Uh, I think it, there's a cause and effect is what I would argue. That it, That yeah. is, in, in other words, in mythologizing, revising, commemorating, memorializing, you ultimately provide the legitimacy to create an entirely new narrative, one that a opportunist demagogue, a real estate swindler like uh, Donald Trump is only too happy to jump on board and to use to fan the flames of outright sedition, sedition that now will be debated, I suppose, in the Senate in Mitch McConnell's you know, U.S. Senate. And so it will be very interesting to see if the, you know, the conciliators, the um, the unifiers, the let's put the past behind us folks, you know, let's look ahead will prevail or whether, you know, those in positions of constitutional authority will be called to account, will be held to account. Yeah, I mean, 
going back to Sher- you know Sherman, um, you know dealing with these uh, Confederate you know local governments, and and the, you know the idea that this legitimated them. I mean, you you can make the case, and I think you were making this case uh, certainly, is that concil- reconciliation is legitimation, mm-hmm. right? That it, if you're going to reconcile, what you're saying is the, the crimes of the past no longer matter, and we can now move forward. But it does matter, and when we see you know George W. Bush, as I said earlier, you know taking part in the in the inauguration and not in handcuffs not in the hague um that symbolizes something and that tells us that um that that didn't matter enough to mm-hmm. us to actually mm-hmm. seek any redress for you know the crimes of that administration um and so you know this is such a theme and we can say american history because that's what we're talking about but i think in, in kind of broader world history how how infrequently these heads of state how infrequently um you know people actually suffer for their crimes as long as they do it within the context of these, uh, you know, the, these systems that, that legitimize their behavior and then when it goes too far are all too willing to forget about uh, what they had done in the, in, in the interest of, of, as you were saying, uh, unity and reconciliation. Yeah, and, and, and let's face it, the stakes are high, aren't they? You know, I mean, it's not just, it's not just naming highways or naming schools or, you know, uh, erecting statues even. I mean, what followed the Civil War and what, what became then really integral to the post-Reconstruction South in this country, you know, what the age we know of is Jim Crow, which was, a, 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 formally speaking, a century-long period of time of not only racial caste, but, you know, we, we've heard the insurrectionists from January 6th referred to as domestic terrorists, and I think that's entirely appropriate. But for a hundred mm-hmm. years, unabated domestic terrorism ravaged the South, and actually not only the South, but also the West. You know, I live in San Jose now. There was a famous lynching in San Jose in the 1930s. Um, but but centered in that Jim Crow racial caste of the South, that unreconstructed part of the ex-Confederate South, right? That held like Jefferson Davis did. That this ultimately it was somehow redemptive, that the, that the mm-hmm. white rule was returned to the South after the tragic mistake, as they called it, of Reconstruction, which had been this remarkable experiment in interracial democracy, what we might call that more perfect union, which is voted down, which is, which is you know, ultimately voted down with the, with the gun by groups like the White League and the KKK. But then even following that, you know, in, in the years of the 20th century, by the lynch, the lynch mobs, uh, mm-hmm. when thousands of black men and women were ritualistically murdered uh, in the South to enforce the claims of white supremacy uh, in terms of what were often seen as equitable, historical, and even religious ceremonies uh, asserting and affirming the heritage, what was called the heritage of white Southerners. Uh, in other words, you could buy p- postcards in the South that showed lynching victims. This wasn't something yeah. that was done in secret. It wasn't something that was done in hiding. It was done openly, publicly. Not a single lyncher was ever uh, arrested, uh, charged, um, convicted, or, 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 or punished for a lynching. You know, right up through the time of Emmett Till, you know, famously in the 1950s, when those lynchers were exonerated by white juries. Um, And I don't even want to speak about this stuff, this racial violence, as if it's in the past, because 
you know, what I consider to be the open killing, the open murder of black civilians for things like selling cigarettes, you know, for uh, what standing outside the wrong convenience store at the wrong time for, you know, for, mm-hmm. for driving, you know, down the wrong road in front of the wrong cop at the wrong time, you know, is only a kind of extension as is the mass incarceration, you know, of black people in our country. So when I say that these things have grievous consequences beyond the statues and the commemoration, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think if, if history can do anything, it's, it's to push back against these versions and to, you know, really push for, I think, the humanity of, of, of everyone, um, as opposed to these uh, older versions of the story, which you know, talk of reconciliation, but are really not speaking to everybody or about everybody. They're speaking specifically about white reconciliation for the purposes of, of you know, a white project. Um, and so, you know, as we kind of move forward as, as historians, as, as instructors, it's paramount, I think, and I, I know, you know, both of us are already very aware of this, to, to tell these stories in ways that don't legitimize these versions of the past, that, that try to tell a truer, uh, morally uh, centered version of these accounts, because um, if we don't do it, then that sickness is just going to keep spreading. Or to use that the metaphor you used earlier, the water damage is going to keep seeping into the walls, and eventually you're going to be living in the decayed structure uh, that you had ignored for too long. That's very well said, partner. Um, somehow we're going to have to make heads or tails out of all this. That's our job as your intrepid hag podcasters, you know, is, is to try to make sense. But I did find myself today feeling as much a part of it as I was somehow an observer, some kind of detached observer, you know. Um, and so uh, I'm, you know, I'm only too happy to acknowledge that, you know, that as we discuss these things today, they don't strike me as being, you know, uh, somehow purely academic. Uh, you know, you've, no. I, I feel that there, you know, if we're going to take this idea of a more perfect union as seriously as we should, then... Uh, you know, what happens tomorrow? You know, we'll let the bands play. We'll let the songs be sung. We'll let the fading go on, you know, of the new uh, president and, and, and vice president. We'll give ourselves maybe some time to, to feel some of the more appealing parts of that, you know. Uh, but uh, you know, let's not kid anybody, right? You know, that uh, the work tomorrow is what's going to determine, you know, how this, this narrative goes forward and so there's a fair amount of ambivalence hey what do you say we take into a a final section here where we try to we try to make heads or tails out of that ambivalence Hey, one of the highlights today, one of those things I allowed myself to, you know, to really enjoy in the inaugural um, was the uh, the introduction of, of, uh, of one of our poet laureates, uh, which is uh, Amanda Gorman, who only in her early 20s, um, a California native, by the way, um, Harvard grad uh, uh, was proclaimed the first, uh, I guess, young person's national poet or something like that. Anyway, so yeah. they, they picked her to deliver uh, the inaugural poem. I remember, uh, you know, I could think of a couple, right? Maybe you can, <laughs> is uh, John F. Kennedy, I think he had Robert Frost 
and uh, kind of a- ancient Robert Frost did a poem for Kennedy. Yeah. And then uh, uh, so from Robert Frost to I remember we both remember Maya Angelou uh, delivering inaugural poetry uh, today, Amanda Gordon. And I yeah, like I say, I really I, I, I enjoyed Miss Gordon's um Poetic performance, let's say, you know, poetry as as performance, and I thought it was quite profound. And I thought to myself, well, you know, uh, a star is born here. Another poem I want to reference, though, right now from uh, Jericho Brown. Jericho Brown is the winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in poetry, though he wasn't on the stand today. He also um, composed a poem called Inaugural. And it was featured in the New York Times Magazine where I came across it. Um, and I thought it captured beautifully to Jericho Brown's poetry, uh, that sense of ambivalence, that both the need to be somehow, um, you know, refreshed, to, to find respite, you know, from uh, the drudgery, the dreariness of the last four years, just on a kind of sensory level. You know, he says in, in his poem, beginning, can, can't you feel it? The trouble with me is I'm just like you. I don't want to be hopeful if it means I've got to be naive. I've bent mm-hmm. so low in my hunger. My hair's already been in the soup. And when I speak, it's just beneath my self-imposed halo. You'll forgive me if you can forgive yourself. I forgive you as you build. So, yeah. Um, that's incredible. I mean, that's, that's such a great encapsulation of, of really how I feel. I think that, that idea of wanting to feel hope, but also not wanting to be naive because, you know, as historians, we know not how things are going to go, but how things have been and, and uh, how quickly these moments of hope can turn into times of, of, of trauma and, um, you know, not, not to go too far into this because, you know, this episode has, has gone on for a while already, but, you know, it just reminds me of this, this post-war period in, in, in world history, uh, post-World War II and, and the emergence of, of that third world, um, that I've, you know, spent a lot of time reading about and, and, and thinking about, um, because of, of that sense of, of hopefulness that came out of it and that this, this sense that they could, create something new, something that was um, apart from, you know, the great power struggles and, and the violence and the competition and the, you know, the, the kind of uh, capitalist exploitation of um, of the world as it had been over the previous few hundred years. And then uh, how quickly those hopes were dashed and not dashed because of, quote unquote, you know, third world corruption or third world, uh, you know, incompetence or third world w- whatever, uh, you know, the, the, the cliches are but because of the active involvement of um, U.S. foreign policy and Cold War f- foreign policy more more broadly. And I think, you know, one of the, the, the reasons I'm reading so much on this period is because it is so um, important to, 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 to recognize these moments when people had that sense of, of hope, certainly, um, but had that sense also that something new could be created that they didn't have to exist within the structures and and the strictures of of the past and um at the same time also understanding that um one of of the things that 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 power and the power structure has done over the past few centuries in particular in the period of of imperialism the neocolonialism the cold war and all, all the rest is it has increasingly tried to limit the political the social 
the historical imaginations of, of the world's people. This is not just something happening within this nation. Um, and then we're told um, that there are no other options, that if you want to uh, exist in this world, these are the things you can do. These are the paths you can, da- can take. And so, you know, I would just urge, or urge everybody, um, if you're looking for, you know, a period of, of hopefulness, you're looking for what it would look like if people felt the freedom and had the imagination to envision a different kind of world, read about that period uh, in the 1940s, but particularly 50s and 60s, when people like Sukarno and Nehru and um, uh, you know uh, uh, Kenyatta and various African leaders as well, Nkrumah, were setting out to try to construct a world that was not confined. Uh, by by the vision of a few rich white people in a few uh, relatively small nations, um, but in which that world could be constructed anew and built into something better. Um, and the fact that it didn't work out, the fact that it was undermined by the direct interference of of the powerful countries, you know, it's is it, tragic, uh, but shouldn't get in the way of of our the, the broader idea that we can imagine better things. Uh, we can continue to push to make them happen. Um, that we don't have to buy into this idea that there's only one way of doing things, one way of, of building the world, one way of taking part in this world. You know, I, I agree uh, completely. And if the price that we have to pay for this vaunted unity, you know, for this vaunted uh, reconciliation, if the price we have to pay is somehow unchecked criminality by the prior regime, mm-hmm. And I would say it's too high a price, you know, just as those those post-colonial leaders you talked about were looking for ways to find constructive roads forward out of the criminality of the imperialist past of their own countries. You know, they they had to what they they had to confront those hard choices. And it's frankly the choice that America has to confront today, you know, and uh, so. Look, along with you, Josh, and, and our countrymen, I guess we'll uh, we'll see over the next few days whether or not, you know, we uh, as a nation have the stomach for holding those folks to account for the crimes uh, that they committed. I guess we'll find out, huh? We will. This has been History Against the Grain, episode 35. we got some exciting things coming in the next weeks and months. So stay tuned, and we'll talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you pay